This is episode 142 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing Winter Youth 2007, Our God, His Love, Your Neighbor with Rick McKinley. This is session three. Good morning, everyone. Wow, that's really good. You guys are awake. Nice. All right. Two of you are awake. <laughs> we, uh, well, first of all, I just want to say that you guys are doing a great job of tracking with uh, what we're talking about up here. It's not, some of it's kind of heavy, it's sort of different than maybe stuff you've heard in the past. And, and uh, what I love about talking with high school kids is that you guys have all the potential in the world to absorb what God wants you to hear you have sort of a zealousness that's willing to believe it, and you're um, not mature enough yet to know that God can't do the impossible. Uh, when we get older, we sort of outgrow those ideas, and which is too bad. And uh, when we started our church, we started with our high school group, really, that, that uh, graduated and moved to Portland, went to college. And so we had 15 kids that were now 19 years old, 20 years old in our living room. And so I hope that as you are wrestling with these ideas and processing these ideas, that you would do it knowing that God could do anything with you, because he is the God of the impossible, God Almighty, the God who is who he says he will be, and the God who sees your heart. And so I hope that you will always have the courage to dream big dreams and pray huge prayers and attempt great things for God. Um, And as you get older... Don't let anybody tell you that's not the way it's supposed to go. Amen? All right. That's all I have to say. Just kidding. Today I want to answer a question. As we've looked at all this, we've looked at Abraham and Moses and David. We've looked at what it looks like to to get a picture of God that they got, which is bigger than the God that we normally kind of hold in our minds. And as we saw them get that picture, they responded to God in a very specific way. They feared Him. But it wasn't the kind of fear where they uh, expected God to, to kill Him. They feared Him and knew He was good. And so it was a fear that produced safety. It was a, a fear that produced trust. It was a fear that kept them from sinning. And ultimately, it was a fear in which they understood that God absolutely loved them, and they were able to live a very just life. What I want to answer the question now is if you and I were to take God up on that, if we embrace this big picture of Him and we live our lives in fear of Him, fear in the best possible sense of the word, then what happens to us? What happens to us? When you look at the life of Abraham, I think so many times when we talk about these Bible characters, and we turn them into heroes, and, and in, in a lot of senses they are, but in a lot of senses they're just like you and I. They're very fallible people. they got lots of issues. They make stupid choices. They make huge mistakes. They have sin in their lives. And so we kind of look at them and we think these people are, are sort of other than us. They're anti-human. They're, they're like aliens from another planet, and they just were able to do everything God told them to do. But the raw kind of reality of it is they're just like you and me. When God comes to Abraham, Abraham's old. He's probably was heading towards retirement. 
He really wasn't expecting that, that his whole life would get redefined in his later years. And not only that, but he was the kind of guy who, he was afraid oftentimes. He was insecure. There are, on two occasions, they go into this other country as they're traveling around to essentially see the land that God gives them. And there's a king in this country, and he turns to his wife, the wife who will bring Isaac into the world, the promised, the promised child. And he says, when we go into this country, do me a favor. Could you tell him you're my sister? So that way he doesn't kill me? Because he'll really want you for his wife? So he goes in there and he essentially says, yeah, she's not my wife. You can have her. I don't know if you're married, uh, women, but that's not a good thing, right? <laughs> if your husband goes, hey, when we go to this party, tell everybody you're my sister, okay? Because I don't want them to whatever, you know? It's just, it's sort of this psycho thing. And, and yet in the midst of it, Abraham is still loved by God, is still embraced by God, is still used by God. And something deep in the core of his character was being shaped by God. As he related to this God who would come and speak to him, as he learned what it meant to fall down before him and yet be safe and be himself, there was this inner working thing that was happening to his heart and God was changing him. When we speak about this whole aspect of transformation, we I don't know if you're like me, but, but I always think about behavior that I shouldn't do that I hopefully one day I'll stop doing. That's what we think of when we think of transformation. We seldom think of relationship, that I'm going to be more loving, that I'm going to understand God and I'm going to worship Him more, that deep in my heart it's going to be changed so I'm going to have courage, I'm going to have boldness. When, when we look at the transformation of Abraham's life, it wasn't just that he quit doing bad things, but that he was becoming something he never was before. And at the end of his life, him and God had been on this crazy journey. And God had taken some guy who couldn't have kids, who was sort of hopeless in terms of passing on his name, and he turned him into the father of, of all who would ever have faith in Christ. Not just the Jewish nation, but Paul says he is the Father who, of all who come by faith. And if you think about 2,000 plus years of people coming to know Christ, and hundreds and hundreds of years prior to that, as the nation of Israel came to be, then God could honestly say to Abraham, look at the stars and see if he could count them. That's how numerous your descendants will be. And God and Abraham on this journey had built a relationship that absolutely changed who Abraham was. And it wasn't that he just quit doing bad things, but it was that he was becoming intimate with this God and his heart was being transformed by it. And if you look with me at Isaiah chapter 41... Verse 8. I'm just using this passage to give you an idea of this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. But listen to what he says about Abraham. 
He says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. Isn't that killer? Like at the end of the day, this pagan worshiping old dude that couldn't have kids becomes the father of many people through the promise of God. He learns to trust God, to have faith in God. He develops courage to go where God tells him to go, even though he has no idea where that's going to lead him. And at the end of it all, God says, he's my friend. Friendship with God only happens if deep within our hearts we are changed. Because you and I come to God as enemies of God, not friends of God. We come to God as people who have sinned against God and rebelled against God, who while we were yet sinning, which means we could care less what God thought about us, while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. And as we have come to know Him by faith, and we journey with Him, there's this beautiful passage in John, where, John, where Jesus turns around to the disciples and says, I no longer call you my servants, I call you my friends. See, if you come to this huge view of God that's so much bigger than you've let it to be, and you fear Him with your heart bowed down before Him, then you've begun a process by which God is going to change deep inside of you your heart. And you could say honestly that I'm a friend of God. I'm a friend of God. For Abraham, he could look back over his life as he died a hundred and some years old. And he could see God show up time and time and time again. He could see all of his mistakes that he's made and God's grace and forgiveness in his life. And God wasn't looking for Abraham to become just a moral person so he could say, look at how good Abraham's behavior is. God was looking for Abraham to become his friend, to learn to trust, to love, to respect, to be about what God was about, and he became his friend. Friends are a big part of high school. Friends are, are, are sort of the part of high school. You've, you've entered into this big nebulous thing called adolescence, and so you leave your parents, so to speak, and and that's not where your primary identity is coming from anymore. When you decide how you're going to dress, you don't go into dad's closet, right? And go, wow, this is cool. Not cool really at all, but uh, members only jackets, awesome, right? 80s, that was so... So, and if you're wearing one of those, I'm so sorry um, that I made the joke because they're really cool. Uh... <laughs> Right? So now you've attached yourself to this peer culture, this peer group, and those, that's your friends, and that's kind of what you're learning, what music I'm going to listen to, and how I'm going to transition into adulthood. And most of the time, that little group, or big group, or whatever group it is that you have, they start to define your values, what you choose, the choices you make, the decisions you make, all that kind of stuff. And I would just encourage you that a big piece of that peer culture should be God. 
should be friendship with God. That God should be directing your values. God should be directing your choices. And the beautiful thing is God doesn't care what color your hair is or how you dress. That's really not what he's about. He really cares about your heart. And that at the core of your heart, you are a friend of God. You fear him and you worship him and you're intimate with him. And you know what friendship with God means. Or you're learning what it means. And, and it's a process, isn't it? Like you don't meet someone for the first time and go, hey, we're best friends. Well, some of you girls do, but you know, you need to, it's probably not that deep, right? Let's, let's get jewelry and we'll share it and we'll have a little heart. I'll have half, you have half, oh, right? But the friends that are going to be there for you, the friends that are going to call when you're sick, care about you when home life's not going good, those kinds of friends, they take time to develop. And they take time to develop because you're spending time with them. And Abraham, God could say of Abraham, he's my friend because they spent a lot of time hanging out together, doing life together. Abraham spent a lot of time letting God direct his choices and his journey. And when it was all said and done, that was the one friend that was still standing. And if Abraham said, There's, who has had the greatest impact on your life? He'd say, God. God who is my friend. And it's appropriate for you at this point to let your peer culture sort of help shape you, be it kind of the bridge that takes you into adulthood. But it would be an absolute mistake to not have God as the primary friend in the equation. And the tough part about that is for some of you, it means there's other friends that you can't hang out with. Those might be really religious friends, really churchy friends. I know that sounds weird. But if God is going to create in you a heart to love everybody, to love the least of these at your school, and to love perhaps the kids who are in trouble, then he may not be asking you to hang out with the kids who kind of think they're better than everybody else and avoid the world. For others of you, God's saying, well, you're probably going to have to leave some of those kids who are starting to smoke pot or get into drugs or do whatever. Because you'll get sucked into it. But the greatest thing that can be said about you years from now is that God would look at you and say, there's my friend. There's my friend. And you become a friend of God because God changes you deep within your heart. That's Abraham. Let's talk about David. David, David is just raw. I love David. Uh, I, I think he probably had a, a, a salty tongue at times. He worked out with the sheep, you know. He was not the guy that was most likely to. And he had a passion for God that was hot and cold. Okay? So he was sort of a, he was an artist. He wrote poetry. He wrote music. And he was hot at times. And he was, it was all God. And then he was cold at times, and it was all David. And there are several occasions in his life where he had terrible failures. Bathsheba is one of them. All the kings went out to war, and David sort of decided, well, I've kind of established a pretty sweet kingdom, and I don't think I have to go out this year. 
And he looks out over the deck and here's this woman bathing and he's like, I want her. So his people go and they bring Bathsheba to him and we don't know if it's consensual. It doesn't say that he rapes her, but there's definitely, if you're a woman in that day standing before a king and he wants to sleep with you, you probably don't have a lot of, feel like you have a lot of choices in the matter. And so she turns up pregnant, sends word to David. David says, well, I know what we'll do. We'll just bring her husband home from the front lines. So he shows up and he's like, I'm not going to go lay with my wife while my men are at war. And at this point, Uriah, which is his name, he becomes much more righteous than David. So he takes off and that he realizes, wow, the guy didn't sleep with his wife. We can't blame the kid on, so, on him. And so he gives word to put, put her husband on the front lines and have everybody step back. So this righteous man in the heat of battle is going forward to take the enemy and everybody falls back and he gets killed. David murders him. Has him murdered. That's not a great thing to put on your spiritual resume. Okay? If some of you grow up and you spin out and you commit adultery and get a woman pregnant and kill her husband, that's not good. Okay? Somebody's going to be like, oh, that's okay. Bad week, huh? You know? Well, let's get back to our Bible study. (laughs) It's a huge failure. But the thing about David is that he was really hot and he was really cold. And he wakes up to this and God sends this prophet to him that tells him this story. It's a story essentially about this one farmer who has this one little lamb. And there's a whole bunch of farmer. And this other farmer has all these kind of sheep. And that farmer comes with all the sheep and he steals this guy's single lamb that he loved. And Nathan and David's getting ticked as he hears the story. He thinks it's a true story. He says, you go find the guy that stole that one little lamb. You bring him to me. We're going to kill that guy. And Nathan looks at David and says, you're the man. And David has one of those, oh, crud moments. (laughs) Wow. Wow. This is the God who sees my heart. This is the God I can't hide from. And we get a picture of how David responds to this in Psalm 51. If you turn with me there, this is David's poem, his prayer, his song that he writes. After Nathan confronts him, and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Remember, he understood the definition of who God's character was. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin are always before me. Against you only have I sinned. Now he's killed a guy. He's gotten Bathsheba pregnant. She's lost her husband. She's going to lose her child. The child dies at birth. And David says, against you only have I sinned. God had consumed such a big piece of his life. And it's not that he didn't know that he hurt these people, 
But he understood that this mighty God whom he feared, he had just gone face to face with, and he sinned against him in the biggest way. I have sinned and done evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in my inner parts. Teach me wisdom in the inmost place. David's life is a life where he worships God passionately. He makes huge mistakes. He has all kinds of pain and turmoil within his own family. And you kind of sit there at the end of it all and you just go, here's a guy who understood who God was. He feared God. There's no question about it. And yet he still had all these major screw-ups in his life. Did God fail with David? Wasn't it supposed to look better than that? And maybe you look at your own journey and you go, you know, I've had struggles with this particular sin for all these years or all, these, all this time. Maybe God just, I'm too bad of a case for God. This whole transformation thing, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm the one person that God just can't figure it out with. And the truth is that just because you sin or you have sinned or you will sin doesn't mean that God's not at work changing your heart. And when you listen to the words of David, what you see is that's a heart that is being changed. It's a heart that did some horrible things, but it's a heart that has come face to face with God and fears Him. It confesses his sin. God, I've been sinful from birth. I know who I am and I know who you are and I need you to bring forgiveness into my life. And there would be a lot of kings who would never think to confess sin, to repent, to be sorry for. So the transformation that God wants to bring about in your life has everything to do with a partnering that you're going to have with God when you blow it in life. When you sin against God, is there a short leash in which you come back and say, God, have mercy on me? Does God have to send Nathan to your door to say, you're the man. You're the woman. Are you practicing a rhythm of repentance in your life that says, yeah, I, I know I'm going to blow it because I'm not going to be perfect, but in the fear of the Lord, when I do sin, I want to get right with God very quickly. The great thing is that history tells us that not only did God not write David off, but everybody that understood who David was from that time forward still referred to David in a very specific way. Turn with me to Acts 13. Acts 
Acts 13.22. Just to get a picture of how they're still talking about David so many years after he's been gone. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And he will do everything I want him to do. David was still seen through the history books as someone, as a man after God's own heart. Not a man of perfection. Not a man without failure, but a man after God's own heart. And I hope that gives you some hope. Like it gives me some hope. We're, we're really good at figuring out what we suck at. Right? We know what our weaknesses are. We know what we're bad at. Many times we're hypercritical of ourselves and we sit around and judge ourselves. And we judge ourselves by the way everybody else is. I'm not like that guy. I can't do what they do. We judge ourselves by the way media kind of portrays people. So most of you in this room are pretty much aware of your sin, of your shortcomings, of where your screw-ups are. When you're not, there's a whole bunch of people around to let you know. So it's not like you need me to tell you. But what I want you to hear is that God, God cares about that. God hates sin. And that God provided a way out of sin through His Son. So that through the blood of Christ you can be forgiven. And when God sees you, He doesn't just see your sin. He sees all the beauty of, that He's created in you. He sees the Spirit at work and all the potential that's there for you to become His friend, for you to become like Jesus. He doesn't show up with a list of things that you're not. That's the accuser. That's Satan. He comes in to tell you how bad you suck. Okay? God shows up to say, You've, you're the man. You're the woman. Now what are you going to do with it? Receive my mercy. Receive my grace. Let me forgive you. So that we once again can walk as two friends on this road to transformation. So I want you to have hope. Acts chapter 13 doesn't say David had a good start and then he became a blow it. Right? David started really well, good young guy, killed that Goliath guy, and then he just became a sex addict, a jerk, murderer. No, it says David was still a man after God's own heart, despite all his failings. Which means you and I have the potential, despite everything we've done, that through the cross of Christ we could be men and women after God's own heart. We could be changed by the Spirit of God. Let's look at Moses. Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Now when Moses starts out, he does not want anything to do with this whole talking bush thing. I mean, he feels like I am the guy that's in the wrong place at the wrong time, and now i got to go explain to people, the bush was burning and it talked to me, and he said God's name's I Am, and it just doesn't look good. 
In fact, he argues with God. I can't talk. I'm not good at speaking. And so God gets frustrated with him. God gives him Aaron. Moses goes through this whole transformation through his life where he goes from someone that's really timid to someone who's actually leading the deliverance of the people of Israel. And he gets so ticked at the people of Israel. But there's points in time where you would think that you I mean, these people, God saves them, and then they grumble, they wish they were back in Egypt, put us back in slavery, the food was better there. Like, are you kidding me? You'd rather be a slave because you get carrots and onions or something? Like, what is wrong with you people? And that's what David's, that's what Moses is thinking. What's wrong with these people? I'm sick of these people. Right? They're driving me crazy. On one particular occasion, they just want water. They're in the desert. They're on a 40-year hike that should have taken 14 days because they just quit believing in God. And so Moses gets ticked and he, and he strikes the rock and water comes out of it. And God's like, you weren't supposed to strike the rock, Moses. Moses is like, yeah, sorry about that. Well, you're not going to the promised land, bro. You're going to die in the wilderness because you didn't obey me. You didn't trust me. So him and God have this really peculiar relationship where you would think Moses would be going, well, then kill me now, dude. Like, what are we doing? We're out in the wilderness here. We're out in the desert. And if I'm not entering the promised land, just wipe me out. And there comes this particular point where God says, Moses, look out. These people are driving me crazy. God says, I'm going to kill these people. And, you, and if I was Moses, I'd be like, finally, let's do this thing. They're right here. Let's go. We'll start over. <laughs> and Moses says, don't do it. If you kill them, kill me. Because I'm with them. God changes Moses from this very timid kind of, I don't want anything to do with you and your agenda, to standing before God Himself and saying, I am the deliverer of these people This is important to your name and your cause. And he comes to the end of his life, and Moses has walked with God for a number of years. And he gets finally to the promised land. All these people who originally said, we don't want to go in, have died off. And Moses is standing there, and listen to what it says in in chapter 34. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo, from the plains of Moab to the top of Pishgah, across the Jericho. And there the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zor. And he said, this is the land that I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to you and your descendants. I will let you see it with your eyes, but you won't cross over to it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab as the Lord said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite of Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave was. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone 
The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Look at verse 10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt to Pharaoh and all his officials into the whole land. No one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. And so here is Moses and God, having been on this journey now for 40 years. Moses going from this very intimidated sort of nobody to the man who talks with God face to face. And God does his funeral. Oftentimes we ask the question, who do you want to speak at your funeral? Who do you want to do the service? God did Moses's. That's fairly impressive. <laughs> right? He buries him. And I don't think it was just like a thump, right? It's a, pic- it's a tender picture. It's a picture of this compassionate God who has loved him. This life that has been transformed by him. This God that has talked with his servant Moses face to face. Face to face. Radical transformation. When we get a big picture of God and we fear Him with our lives. Not perfect lives. Not just moral religious people. But intimate, relational transformation. Abraham, the friend of God. David, the man after God's own heart. Moses, who he talked with face to face. And then there's you and I, right? And we come to this story on the other side of the cross, and God has died in our place and rose again. And if you're a Christ follower, He has sent His Spirit to live in your life. And we look at guys like Moses and we think, well, Man, it doesn't get better than that, does it? Does it get better than, than Moses face to face with God? Well, when Moses would talk with God face to face, and he'd come off the mountain, the people would say, cover your face. Because the glory of just being that close to the presence of God that was sort of reflecting off Moses' face, kind of like if you uh, were under a sun lamp and your face turned red, but his was shining with the glory of God. And they're like, that's too much for us. It's too holy. We can't handle it. Cover it up. And so Moses would come with a veil over his face off the mountain just so the people wouldn't like freak out on him. This is a God who has transformed him. And you and I come to this same God on this side of the cross. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll close here. My uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 page is missing. (laughs) My kids are going to pay dearly for that. Thanks, bro. That's the first time that has ever happened. I'm just like, huh. 
And I could have been super sly, and I could have been, why don't we just have someone read that? But no, it's missing. And he doesn't even have 2 Corinthians in his Bible. I'm just kidding. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. Here's what it says as soon as I get there. Any minute. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until the very day the reading of the Old Covenant the same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That is a huge statement. Paul is saying that you and I, as we have come to Christ and the Spirit of God lives within us, all come to God with an unveiled face. We can take the glory. He's transformed us in such a way that when God looks down on you, He doesn't just see your sin, He sees the righteousness of Christ. And so when the glory of God shows up, you belong there. And so we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory as in a mirror, reflecting from Christ to us, are being transformed into His likeness. That you and I that come to this big God with this huge definition to His character and His name, whose name is Jesus. He is doing a deep inner work in our lives as we fear Him and know Him. To be a friend of God, but to speak with Him spirit to spirit. And the change that He's making and wants to make is that you are going to become more and more like Jesus. You're going to be more and more transformed by His Spirit into the image of Christ. And some of you are sitting there going, okay, is that going to be a bummer though? Right? I mean, I mean, that sort of sounds blasphemous to ask, but some of you are thinking it. Does that mean that I've got to dress differently? That I've got to wear like some tunic thing and... Like, what is it? What is the image of Christ? It means that Abraham still got to be Abraham. And Moses still got to be Moses. And David was still David, for bad and for good. And you still get to be you. Your personality. Your gifts. The things you're good at. Your tastes. The things you like. Your affections. But all those things are going to be part of what God creates to radiate His beauty and His glory through your life. So your passion for music becomes something that Christ gets seen through. And it doesn't mean that you only have to sing Jesus songs. 
But the glory of the Lord could be seen in your gifts. It means that the, the way that you are right now and your personality and stuff, that, that's stuff that God wants to redeem and maintain. But He wants you to do things like love. Like worship. He wants you to have things like mercy and compassion. When you think about the image of Christ, it is not just a picture of a guy who didn't do anything wrong. And we know that he was without sin, but he wasn't walking around in a three-piece suit just kind of like, eh, 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 right? He got mad. He was angry. And he was angry at the right things. He threw fits at the right times. He didn't sin in doing it. There's a lot in this world that you can be righteously angry about today and be like Jesus. Being like Jesus is not a boring thing, and I think we think it is. Does that mean we're going to go to church a lot? Does that just mean that that's what I've got to be about all the time? Being like Jesus means you're going to be on an adventure. You're going to go in risky places. You're going to be sent out to touch people that nobody cares about. You're going to confront systems in our culture and in our world that are totally anti-Christ, and you're going to boldly stand against them. And, and a lot of you, when you look at that picture of Jesus, are going, my gosh, I'm not like that. <laughs> I don't have courage. I, 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 don't, I don't want to share my faith with my friends. I don't want to love people who are gross, right? I just don't. I'm being honest. I, 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 don't want to, um, I don't really want to give up certain things in my life that I know God doesn't want me to have, but I, I really like them. And we think about all the reasons that we can't be like Jesus, and we realize that we're much like Abraham when God first called him. We're a lot like Moses at the bush going, I can't do that. I, I can't. Uh, there's no way. There's, I just don't have. But it's, it's a step-by-step, moment-by-moment, coming to this God who is so big. Coming to Him in the fear of the Lord. And saying to Him that I want to be friends with you. I want to be a man and woman after your own heart. I want to commune with you spirit to spirit. I want you to change me into your image and your likeness. And I know right now that I'm just sort of this whiny guy standing before a burning bush. I know it's going to be a huge process. But you are a God who is slow to anger, abounding in love, gracious and compassionate. So I'm in good hands with you. My hope is that you would take God up on the greatest invitation of your life. That you would chase after Him and be conformed to His image and His likeness. And that years from now, when it's time for your funeral, God would say, that's my friend. That's the one that I talked to with spirit to spirit. That is the child after my own heart. And they look, not outwardly, but inwardly, a lot like my son Jesus does. Let's pray.
Jesus, we come to you um, as sinful people, knowing full well um, what we're not. But you are the big God who can change us as we put our fear in you, that we fear you. My prayer today, God, that as we, um, as we consider the deep inner work that you're doing in our lives even now, that perhaps we could learn just to pay attention to the fact that you're here, you're present, and you're in us. And that you wouldn't let the world and our friends sort of distract us away from the fact that you're changing us, transforming us into the image of your Son. God, we want to we know in a deeper way what friendship with God means. We want to speak to you face to face and behold your glory with unveiled faces. We want to be people that are people after your own heart. Ultimately, we want to be like Jesus. And ultimately, we don't want to be like Jesus. And so would you meet us in this place and invite us to just love you and to worship you because you're the one that's doing the work within our hearts. And for that, we give you praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.